0: Hello, this is Playback Daily on Tuesday the 16th of January.
1: I'm Louise Herity and here's some of what's coming up on the show. And we get to showcase and highlight some of those other amazing collections and then digitally show the journey of the Book of Kells, that really dramatic, exciting journey from Iona in Scotland through to present times in Trinity.
2: Um, Prostate cancer is extremely common. Uh, Luckily, we treat this very well now. Uh, We diagnose it earlier. Um, and so there's more of a focus, Mm -hmm. uh, and rightly so, on on survivorship.
3: By all accounts,
0: this is a man who did an awful lot for the GAA and for Ireland, so I would think it would be a shame to lose that honouring of that man. Well drivers are becoming more concerned about the dangers of other motorists dazzling them with their headlights which could potentially spark a rise in accidents on the road. That's according to a report from the RAC driving body in the UK. But is it a growing problem here? Clare Byrne was joined by Geraldine Herbert, motoring correspondent with the Irish Independent, Martina Callanan from Galway Cycling Campaign and Louise Williams who's a cyclist
4: to discuss. But Jardine, I'm going to start with you. How big a problem is this? Because since I mentioned we were going to be talking about this this morning, people have been texting in in their drove saying it's an issue for them on the roads.
5: Yeah, it seems to be far more an issue than we're actually acknowledging. Now, the RSC, RSC have um, consistently spoke about this for the last number of years and their stats are actually very interesting. And one of the things that I would find very concerning is they found that 25% of drivers over 65 actually won't drive at night because of it. Now, we would have a very similar mix of the kind of cars that they would have on our roads So I would doubt that it isn't a a big issue here as well. Interestingly, though, I got in touch with the the Road Safety Authority to see if there was any figures on it here. There Mm -hmm. hasn't been any surveys and there aren't any figures, but that's not to say it's not an issue because the minute you start tweeting about it or
4: talking about it, everybody has an opinion so definitely there's something there. And what do people say to you then when they they get in touch? Is it the the bigger vehicles the ones that are higher off the ground the SUVs because those lights if you're driving a smaller car Mm. they tend to hit you where it hurts? Yeah
5: I think it's a combination of two things we had a situation where LED lights were quite expensive now they've become cheaper so they're filtering into all sorts of cars so there's more of them on the road and they they emit this sort of blue light which apparently is much harsher on the eye than the yellow light from the halogen lights of old the sort of bog standard lights we used to have the other problem is obviously not only SUVs but all our cars are getting higher up and the higher up they go the more that beam has changed and that beam tends to just dazzle us more so I think that is the problem but definitely it's funny that it was a timely piece that we're doing here today because about two weeks ago I had a BMW and the entire week I had it I was flashed by other car drivers the whole time who thought I had my full headlights on the ho- and I didn't I had my dim mm-hmm. lights but that'll just show you how powerful they were they were being viewed as full lights to other people okay, but,
4: but so This is all regulated you you know, the, the mm-hmm. car manufacturers are ad- adhering to, to mm-hmm. what they should in terms of the regulations, right? Yeah, absolutely. And the reason, and I mean, every part of a car is, is
5: tightly regulated by type approval in the EU and you can't veer from that and that they're, they're very constrained by that. But I think what we're seeing more than anything is they're being used because they give better light mm-hmm. for the person behind the wheel. And we see a huge amount of safety being being basically concerned with the person behind the wheel rather than the other people in other cars or pedestrians or cyclists so I think we need to move away from only viewing safety in terms of the person behind the wheel
4: I notice if you meet somebody who's coming over a speed bump sometimes that can be quite difficult and you'll have to look to isn't the the rule or the guidance to look to your left margin to avoid that glare just
5: take your eye away from that glare because it can literally blind you for a split second and we know the whole reason why mobile phones are so dangerous when you're texting or whatever is you're taking your eyes off the road so anything that forces you not to be able to see the road or forces you to look away from the road is dangerous. Mm -hmm.
4: Well let's get the cyclist view now because Louise I know you spent the weekend cycling around the burn and you had a fairly frightening experience tell us what happened.
6: Yeah I got into Gort station so I got the train down uh, from Dublin uh, with my electric bike right and I left Gort station at about 6.30 on Friday and I found immediately that just the, the outskirts of Gort I was going about six kilometres co- towards Kilmacdua Abbey that's where I was staying and immediately the um, you know it, for the first uh, section leaving Gort it was well lit and then the street lighting stopped so when I'm I'm lit up like a Christmas tree and I have electric bike, so I have quite a good headlight at the front but having said that it was a pitch dark night and there was very little that I could pick up on the road that would guide me. And this is before there were any cars. There's ca- occasional stripes of white lines that could guide me, but it's a very stripped out landscape. It's slightly horror movie like, like it was kind of terrifying and a little bit exciting until then a car arrives coming towards me. And, you know, I, I'm, I've gone from barely being able to see anything to being completely sort of, sort of. Uh, overexposed almost you could say by this car but I can't see anything I know that everything around me is being exposed but I can't look to the left as Geraldine was describing yeah. or and yourself because there's no way of getting kind of any perspective I'm mm-hmm. a little bit higher up than a driver would be because I'm on my bike and I'm on a, a Dutch bike so I'm sitting up straight so I'm completely blinded in that moment I kept on cycling because it felt like that was the only thing I could do and slow down but it, it's kind of you're going from extremely dark environment to this environment where you can't Cannot see a thing, and it's that contrast, it's that, it's suddenness of it, and it, it felt absolutely hazardous and terrifying. And do you now, think I'd the, 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 drivers, the yeah. driver
4: that you were meeting, do you think they had their full beam on? Yes, okay. I know they did,
6: because then they dipped them, and then I can then I could navigate again. So it's it's the contrast, I think, Claire, that, that you're going from barely able to see anything to suddenly. You, you, you still can't see anything but um, except for the car light. You know, you really are the rabbit in the headlights. You're kind of, you're you sort of caught in those headlights and, and this, um, yeah, it must be maybe something to do with the fact that I don't have a windscreen perhaps, like a pedestrian and all the cyclists who would be out on the roads at night, but I can't I can't see anything at all. And it mm. is, it's it's, extremely dangerous, especially because, you know, on some of those roads would be very small and as it is the, the turlocks are high, there was a lot of flooding on the roads, you know, the hazards are, are piled up already on the those roads yeah.
4: in the barn. Does that make a difference, uh, Geraldine? You know, if you're behind a, a windscreen, are you more likely to be able to avoid the glare? Yeah well there's
5: various different things in the car you can dim your, your rear view mirror as well if it's coming from behind if your windscreen is clean it makes a difference it, it kind of blocks that glare the cleaner it is inside and outside you can also get nice um, glasses you know you can talk to you. so there's various different things that just aren't really um viable for pedestrians and cyclists and again I, I think we see with technology automatic um, dimming headlights they just don't see pedestrians and cyclists again so they're being exposed for much longer with these full beams mm-hmm. so you know there's a lot of technology that's out there that could be tuned better for all road users and not just, as I said, the person behind the wheel. Okay. Well, Martina,
4: who's with us as well, has experienced, Martina, I know of the dazzling headlights, both as a cyclist and also as a driver.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. So I walk, cycle, I have an e-bike too, like Louise, and I share a hatchback with my husband. And so um, I unfortunately had an unpleasant uh, experience in County Clare as well, um, a couple of years ago, it was a winter's evening. I was uh, a long journey, about two and a half hours. I'd planned for my journey; it took loads of time, and the journey took me a lot longer, put it forty-five minutes longer, because the weather conditions were appalling. It was uh, so it was dark; it was evening time, and um, it was very wet and it was very windy. And so I slowed down to adjust to drive the conditions, but also I was incredibly dazzled and blinded by not only oncoming. Uh, vehicles, but also vehicles coming from behind me, and, and yes, like Geraldine suggests, there I had you know clean wind, uh, clean windows, and I adjusted my rear view mirror. Um, but because I think that I had adjusted my my behaviour to meet the conditions to slow down, other people driving got incredibly frustrated. Were tailgating me. Were so close to me that I couldn't read the registration plates, and were making dangerous overpasses. And I'm I'm inside a car. I'm in a I'm in a hatchback, so I'm lower than a lot of obviously commercial vehicles and SUVs on the road. And it was an incredibly frightening, unpleasant experience. And instead of arriving an hour ahead of time and having time to check in and relax and change my clothes before meeting my friends for dinner, I was I was like late for dinner and I just sat down with my friends and burst into tears mm-hmm. because it was just so, so horrible. So as well as the, as Geraldine has outlined, there's so much technology has been focused on the safety and the comfort and convenience of drivers like me, um, bigger, higher, heavier cars, faster acceleration, entertainment sy- systems, hermetically sealed against the outside conditions and the unpleasantness of wind and rain, effectively mobile sitting rooms. But these massive personal and family vehicles are causing multiple dangers for people beyond the windscreen, outside the car, for, for people walking and uh, cycling, uh, as well as you know fellow uh, drivers like my good self.
4: And did that put you off then driving at night?
3: Yes, yeah. I I came home and I was like, I I do not want to drive at night if I don't have to. I definitely don't want to drive at night on rural roads that I'm unfamiliar with. Um, my husband is from a farm, so when we go and visit his his family, there's always discussion as to well, who's going to drive. Um, not only just there, but who back, you know, who who gets to enjoy a glass of wine at dinner. And I will. I, I I'm pregnant now, so. Um, I'm not having wine at dinner, um, but I was still, for me to drive home after visiting the farm, I'm checking the weather. Mm-hmm. How, how wet will it be? Will it be icy? Uh, what's the time of, uh, what time of night is it? Like how much traffic will there be on road? And I'll make the decision. But generally now I ask, I ask my husband to drive, I ask my friends to drive and take a lift with them.
4: I didn't uh, realise, Geraldine, that we have these automatic um, strong lights, you know, full beam lights, but I just see listeners getting in touch here. Mary saying, please ask all drivers when driving in the countryside to manually dim their lights when driving. A slight bump in the road turns on their full lights. Is that the case? Can you imagine that's the case? Well, no. I think that's just because when you go over a bump,
5: it pushes the the, the beam higher, higher and that, that's ex- what it looks yeah. like. Yeah. But you do have to be conscious as a driver at all times of the other people on the road. You know, pedestrian, cyclists, and other drivers. Yeah.
4: But Mary felt as though the car behind her, which was traveling at forty miles an hour. Was constantly flashing the lights at her, but it wasn't. You're saying it was just it could going have been over just the an uneven the bumps. surface. Yeah, that would do that. But how do, how does it work then? That the cars that have the automatic full beam is that on automatically all the time unless they meet something? Is that how they, they work?
5: Yeah, essentially how they work is they're, they they dim the lights and they they have the full light on. So basically, it, it, it'll override you. So as soon as it sees a light, it will interpret that as a car and it will dim it. The problem is it they vary from car to car. Some of them work quite effectively. None of them work perfectly. But some of them are really, really slow. So they'll wait until a car is nearly on top of you before they'll actually dim the lights. Others respond to street lights, others respond to parked cars. So I have yet to find an automatic um, dimming light system that actually works mm-hmm. effectively. And I normally just switch them off and just use the, the right because
4: e- even if you're driving on a motorway and someone, you know, there could be three lanes away from you coming in the other direction. If they've their full beam on, mm. it can be really blinding.
5: Mm. But I mean, you don't need full beams in places like that where you have proper lights. You really should be using them where there's no cars. so it shouldn't be, But of course, on a country road, you're going to meet other cars. But definitely, as I said, the automatic lights don't work as mm-hmm. effectively as they should.
4: So uh, in terms, um, Louise, of cycling in yeah. the dark now, is that something you try to avoid or are you still comfortable doing it?
6: No, I mean, yeah, I really, I, I really came close to serious accidents on, on Friday night. Like, it really was very, it really was very dangerous, mm-hmm. and um, I couldn't, you know. So I spent the weekend in the barn, and and I made sure that I was where I needed to be and not cycling out uh, once it got dark. Uh, generally, you know, I live in a city, so it it doesn't put me off. But, you know. I, I want to acknowledge that like burn drivers are really good. They dimmed their headlights the minute they spotted me. But I mean, I think it's kind of we're designing to make it a hostile environment for cyclists and pedestrians on country roads that are unlit. And the more we design that way, the fewer people are going to dare to go out and cycle and walk. And and you are creating this kind of environment where it just becomes um, only safe for you know large cars with um, perhaps these LED beams that, um, yeah. that we're talking about. So like, I, I was put off in the burn, like this, there was, but that was partly also to do with road flood. I think it was partly to do with the cloud uh, coverage. The moon was low. Do you know, yeah, it was there just a, a bad
4: situation. All of these things coming together, and um, we're getting huge yeah. reaction to this. So it's it's clearly a problem for mm-hmm. lots of people. Geraldine, thank you very much for coming in. Geraldine Herbert, motoring editor with the Sunday Independent. Ka- Martina Callan, we also spoke to, and Louise Williams there as well. Thank you very much.
0: As heard on Today with Claire Byrne. On the Nine O'Clock Show, host Shay Byrne spoke to Jackie O'Donovan, who shared her inspirational story of becoming a company director at just 19 and all that has happened since. She started by telling Shay about her mum and dad. Uh,
7: both my parents uh, were born in a village called Goline in West Cork, uh, down by the Mizen Head. And uh, my dad then moved at the age of five to Drimley which is still West Cork. And they were... Uh, they met in the dance hall in Skibberine and the rest, as I say, was history. They went to, to London for the... Dad went and then sent the money back for my mum and my mum followed him back over.
8: So they arrive in London, so it's around, what, 19 uh, late 50s?
7: Late 50s, yeah. Um, early 60s, then my um, older brother came along and then my sister and they went back to Ireland, they tried to make a go of it, didn't work, came back over again, and en route my next brother was born, He's uh, he was born in Dublin, and uh, Dad started his own business up, and in demolition first, and then he went into waste management, and unfortunately we lost him at the young age of 51 in 1985, mm. uh, when we were all quite um, young, I was only 17 at the time.
8: And where, where was the business base? Where did they emigrate to in, in London?
7: It was, nor- well, we were all b- born in Kilburn or County Kilburn as we fondly <laughs> know it as. Um, and then we moved over to North London at Dad's Yard. Uh, first of all, he started off at King's Cross where the British Library is now. And then he went to Gospel Oak, which was John Murphy's yard. Um, and yeah, we went to various other places and we've ended up in Tottenham.
8: Well, people will be familiar with those places. And of course, the Galty Moor. I met her at the Galty Moor
7: yeah all the forum yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. you're, you're my age now
8: no not at all. your your dad your dad um, he, like it's a tough business to get into and he got into waste disposal he he was but he was well well received in in the area he was well got as they say
7: oh yeah no he was yeah massively he was probably one of the biggest biggest players at the time in his era um he was known as generous joe um to all the other people in the industry but yeah he was um, massive in in that in that industry in London in those days. Why was he called generous, Joe? Because he was probably too generous, really, if the truth be known. Um, but, yeah, Dad just had that um, generosity streak going through him. Uh, you know, we'd always have a way for a stray sitting at the Christmas table with us um, or in the car going back to West Cork for holidays. Um, so, yeah, Dad always uh, always picked uh, picked up the ones that needed help.
8: I'm guessing that when Irish people arrived in London and, and they needed a job, your dad's phone number was probably in their pocket.
7: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a few stories I could tell you there, yeah. Uh, people pretending they were cousins to get where they were to, uh, in those days, yeah. yeah.
8: <laughs> so you, you, you come along, within the. So where, do you, where do you place within the family? I'm the youngest. You're the youngest, you're the youngest. Yeah. And so it's a family business, so everybody has to get involved.
7: Yeah, we um, we all got involved. I mean, it was such a shock. I suppose none of us really thought about, uh, particularly me and my sister. We didn't probably think about even going into the business. Um, but when you know, Dad went, so young, Mum was only forty-eight. So it was a massive shock. Sure, but, uh, it but, was all shoulders to the wheel.
8: Absolutely, but but it wasn't. You weren't a stranger to the business. You were there from a young age.
7: Yeah no yeah that was our uh, weekend that was our pocket money we had to go to the office and and clean the office uh, so mum used to drag us down to clean the office at the weekend so oh, did you ever hard work hard, you, hard work at a young age we were probably driving driving machines as well at some stage I was I actually um, I'll tell you who taught me to drive a lorry at eleven was Johnny Rotten's dad <laughs> he drove for my dad and subsequently drove for us then when dad died uh, for many many years ah. Yeah.
8: And did you get to meet Johnny?
7: Yeah, yeah. He'd done a video actually in the um in the yard and his brother had a band called 4B2. They'd done a video in the yard as well uh, in Gospel Oak, yeah, in Murphy's yard.
8: You weren't joking when you said there was a few stories to be told.
7: Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> How long have you got?
8: <laughs> <laughs> but you, 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 your mind was on business. There was a great story about your dad saving up petrol tokens.
7: Yeah, yeah. He used to, um, in those days, he used to get the, the tokens at the petrol station and he used to gather them all up and he'd bring me home uh, like a really plasticky, cheap, tat um, briefcase. But back in them days, it was probably, it looked like a, a designer's a, a briefcase. And yeah, I used to strut around the kitchen with it, dreaming about being in this big office block uh, when I was uh, growing up.
8: I suppose with with unfortunately when your dad passed in 1985 there's four of you and there's an older brother and I suppose in 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 terms of say Irish families the, the older brother would be the one to be expected to take over.
7: Yeah um yeah the, the you mean and we we actually thought the the that... That Michael, uh, the older brother, would just take on on the reins. Uh, but then when Dad died, it was it was just a different kettle of fish. He was he was only 23. Uh, he was out in the lorry, uh, so we had to downsize. So we downsized, um, and then the two boys went out driving the lorries, and uh, my sister went off to have my niece, and I was left in the office. And then we got somebody that went to school with us to come into the office, and there was two of us in the office, and it just naturally fell to me in the office to make the phone calls and do the paperwork so it wasn't a a, a deliberate decision it wasn't something we sat around the table I just took I just took the reins and and gone with it basically i
8: think sometimes and i, I know from experience with family businesses that that uh, hierarchy of uh, an older the older brother or the person who's supposed to take it that can be a terrible weight on people's shoulders
7: yeah I I think um I think everybody was looking at my older brother uh, as a mini dad and my older brother's uh, got an awful lot of um attributes and I think it was unfair he was only three weeks married so it was a massive shock to him and of course he was he was working with dad for years and years so it caused a massive void in 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 his life uh, you know as much as the rest of us but obviously he was working longer with him but yeah I think I think it was it was expected that he would he would take the business on um and he he had uh, uh, a massive key role in the business, as did the two in the middle. Um, we all sort of took our lanes, and I suppose my lane just seemed to be the one that was more public to people um, because I'd have to go to working groups or um, meetings or go and see the bank manager and things like that. Because the boys were out on the road in the early days, so I, it wasn't anything deliberate. It was just it's just how 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 it fell, how the cards fell, I suppose, and. You know, uh, people do say about family businesses, but we've worked harmoniously together for... Well, I don't say how many years, it's that long. Uh, you know, well over 35. Um and, and we've never had a massive fallout. And it's, you know, to the point where we actually socialise together. So I think we're very lucky that we've been able to have that relationship as a family and have... The experience of, you know, growing up and bringing up our families, you know, entwined yeah. with each other. Uh, a lot of people say, oh, well, God, I couldn't even have my brother over for Christmas Day. You know, that's enough for me. But no, we we socialise and work together and have done. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Yeah.
8: It must have been hard for you, though, sitting in the office at 17, um, with dad gone and probably reminders of him everywhere. Because you, you were quite close to your dad.
7: Yeah, I was daddy's little girl. Um i suppose i wasn't in the office at 17 i stayed at home to look after mom we were worried about mom so it was probably knocking the eighteen, nineteen. i got into the office and yeah it it was a different office i had to one of the first or second challenges i had was we we got marching orders out of our yard so we had to get another yard and i actually signed a 10-year lease for the office that we're still in now actually and uh, so we're knocking on 38 years in there and A 19-year-old signing a lease for 10 years is like signing your life away.
8: And how did the bank treat you when you went in to to meet them?
7: Well, I didn't have the Irish accent. Uh, I was the wrong sex and I didn't play golf. (laughs) So I didn't have a lot going for me, unfortunately. Because you
8: were dealing with an Irish bank
7: was dealing with an Irish bank. Well, the first Irish bank told us uh, that none of us uh, were ever going to follow in our father's footsteps uh, or be able to have uh, the business acumen that he had. Uh, So they closed our account down. So we had to go to another Irish bank over in England and um, join them. And it took absolutely years and years of very good numbers to finally convince the bank manager that actually I did know what I was doing and we all were behind the business and it was we were growing year on year uh, and then he decided to resign retire <laughs>
8: okay yeah so you start you start all over again
7: no, no. Told him it wasn't doing my... I had my old plates on for him. I wasn't going to put them back on for the next manager. <laughs> he just needed to look at the numbers.
8: I can hear the steel in your voice there. Uh, Michael <laughs> Michael was out on the truck. Caroline and, and Anthony were doing other things within the business. But, but you were in the yard, and, and if anybody has been in a waste disposal yard, it's a busy place with trucks coming and going, collections, deliveries... Uh, and look, let's face it, particularly in the in the 1980s, a lot of male-dominated kind of conversations and uh, viewpoints in the yard. How did you deal with that?
7: I just got on with it. I suppose back then in the 80s, the male domination piece wasn't really a thing. Um, I didn't know it was a male-dominated industry. It wasn't something that was... You know, I was coming across, um, I was office-based, I was answering the phone, there was only two of us in the office, so I didn't get out that much. Um, So I suppose it would be the odd bank meeting to the bank uh, or the bank would be coming in uh, until we started to get bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger and and the business grew and grew and then I realised... I mean, even today I could still go into a meeting and be the only uh, female operator in the room with 20 or 30 other men.
8: So... Business starts to boom, and everybody seems to find some, something something to do within the business, which they still do today.
7: Yeah, um, yeah, we we all had major roles. So my sister headed up the busiest uh, departments that was doing over fifty percent of the turnover. Um, my older brother uh, was picking and choosing the vehicles and where we were going to buy yards and and looking after the drivers and then the other brother was going between uh, different the yards looking after the yards and banking and such things
8: how do you find time for yourself at that stage though you're such so young in the business and and probably the business is seven days a week at that stage
7: yeah, it is. I mean, it's seven days a week, twenty-four-seven. It's it's you. You don't when when you're in business and you're running a business. You know, there is no work-life balance. You know, work is my life, and I absolutely love my work. I wouldn't have it any other way. I I every day is different, and every day brings a new challenge, and every day I learn something new. And it's just, yeah, I wouldn't change it for the world.
8: But you you did manage to find somebody to to marry and have a child as well.
7: Yeah, I uh, I got married and I had a lovely bouncing baby boy who I named after my dad, Joseph. And yeah, and then I got postnatal depression and my marriage ended when Joseph was three months old. Three months? Three months, yeah. So I had postnatal depression for about three and a half years. Okay. But it just wasn't something that was discussed in those days.
8: Very much a, a taboo subject, I suppose, at that stage
7: massively to boot because you know it was always oh you know you know so and so she had 15 kids in the trot and you know you've only got one so you know you've got to get on with it it was that sort of mentality
8: Maybe this is where where having family around comes in as an advantage
7: Oh massively yeah I mean I couldn't I couldn't have managed uh, without my mum I mean my mum was my saving grace uh, and my son is the man he is today because of uh, both me and my mum
8: So raised by the raised by the family the extended family Yes you, and, and did you have time for to, to, to go to school, to bring them to school or to do that stuff while you're trying to manage a massive business?
7: Yeah, I did, know. Um, I religiously took him to school each and every morning. Uh, he was never late, I might add, uh, from the whole of his school term. And uh, he was uh, very sporty, so he played all the sports at school and I would go to all the matches on the Saturday and then he played rugby on Sunday and I would go to all them. Um, so, yeah, you know... The taxi, mum, the taxi. So, but I absolutely loved it. Yeah, absolutely loved it. Uh, The only one game I couldn't stick was cricket. So I used to bring my paperwork with me, do my paperwork. When everybody started clapping, I'd look up and start clapping. Yeah, (laughs) tedious, tedious sport. Don't know how anybody does it, but never mind. Uh,
8: And where, how's he doing now?
7: Yeah, he's doing very well now. Yeah, he's just starting out on a on a new career. He's just finished uh, university. Went to America for university, and um, yeah, he's he's very good.
8: Did you get to go over and see him?
7: Oh, I went very regularly, yeah. Once, nearly once a month. Once a month? Know, I've only got one, yeah. I used to go out on the, the five o'clock flight on Friday and come back in on the red-eye Sunday night, straight into work, yeah. Oh, he was spoiled, wasn't he? Well, yeah, well, it was probably more me um, wanted to go than rather than him wanted to see me because we used to call each day. But yeah, yeah, you've, I've only got one. <laughs> Did
8: you do his washing?
7: Yeah, oh cool, yeah, yeah. Gosh, yeah, Yeah, I did, yeah, yeah. And thank God they had big washing machines in America, yeah. Yeah, I think his washing and about five others, I used to just be loading washing machine from the time I arrived to the time I left, yeah. Jackie
0: O'Donovan speaking to Shea Byrne on the Nine O'Clock Show today. The vast majority of prostate cancer cases are cured through treatment. However, for most men, that battle continues even after the cancer is gone. The months and years after treatment, known as the survivorship period, present a whole new set of challenges. And Claire Byrne was joined by Ireland's first cancer survivorship urologist, Dr John Sullivan.
4: Thank you for being here. I think people would be surprised to hear about that, you know, that, that a lot of the challenges happen after your cancer is gone and we'll come to that in a minute. But I want to talk to you first about just how common prostate cancer is in this
2: country. Sure. Well, good morning, Claire. It's uh, it's great to be here this morning and to, to uh, shine a light on uh, on this topic. Uh, essentially, every uh, patient that is diagnosed with a cancer becomes a cancer survivor at that time point of diagnosis. Uh, and unfortunately, almost half of us will at some point in our lives um, receive a cancer diagnosis. So when we look at the, the burden, um, especially when with regard to, to male cancers, um, prostate cancer is extremely common. Uh, look at the, we treat this very well now. Uh, we diagnose it earlier. Um, and so there's more of a focus, mm-hmm. uh, and rightly so, on, on survivorship.
4: We, we we diagnose a lot in Ireland, so 4,000 cases a year around and about. Now, when I read that, I wanted to know why are Irish men getting cancer, but that's not what's happening. It's we're finding it.
2: Indeed. In fact, uh, we have the highest rate of, of prostate cancer diagnosis in Europe. Um, and as you say, about one in seven men will receive a diagnosis of prostate cancer. The positive or the good news, uh, the good news story about uh, our treatment is it's world class here in Ireland and the vast majority of men uh, are cured of their cancer. Mm-hmm. So they live with it um, or at least die uh, with, um, you know, w- without uh, a cancer uh, diagnosis.
4: Now, you don't deal with the cancer itself. You come in after that. Is that right?
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I am um, by definition a urologist by training. Uh, so I'm a cancer or I'm a, a surgeon by training. Um, but I, I see myself as an andrologist and as a, a sexual medicine physician uh, mm-hmm. as well. So a, a rehabilitation physician and a surgeon. So what I focus in on are really the, uh, the side effects of prostate cancer treatment, the collateral damage that results from surgery, radiation treatment, uh, erectile problems, continence, mm-hmm. um, you know, endocrine issues, low hormones, fertility. These are all things that, that I am specially trained in
4: Um, When does the patient learn about those problems, that this is likely going to happen once you've gone through your treatment? Do they find out about it from the get go or is it afterwards?
2: They find out about it from the get go. And I know uh, for a fact in St. James's and and through the Cancer Institute where I work, but also nationally, that um, that patients are being informed uh, and educated uh, uh, right from the point of, of diagnosis. Now, we're not where we should be. And I think that we're making some great strides. But when I think about my time in the United States and uh, living in New York City and, and in Houston um, and educating uh, patients or being uh, exposed to how uh, the attitude the patients had with regards to their sexuality and how open and educated they were, I think that we need to continue to strive to improve that. Mm-hmm. Uh, from a, you know, Will uh, you
4: tell me more about that
2: difference? Sure, yeah. I mean, uh, being in uh, Texas uh, for a year and a half and working in the Texas Medical Center, uh, the stereotypes are true in the sense that um, uh, Texan people are bigger uh, and better than, uh, or at least they think they are. Uh, and certainly from, from a health standpoint uh, and from uh, a service provision standpoint, there is more demanded from uh, physicians as to why I have the cancer, what uh, is going to happen to me, what side effects what's the 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 you know the the morbidity or the issues that will come from treatment mm-hmm. um we are still a little bit behind that i think that why is that maybe um you know traditionally uh, patients were more deferential to their surgeon uh, and oncologist here in ireland uh, and whether that was a um generational thing or not but um you know as our patients are becoming younger that they're asking more questions, asking, maybe, or, sh- or
4: should be. Because I think, you know, I would imagine that somebody who gets this cancer diagnosis, has the treatment, comes out the other side and goes, thankfully, I don't have cancer anymore. So I'm going to put up with erectile dysfunction and incontinence. Is, is that happening?
2: Well, we're changing that. Uh, and I know my, my cancer surgeon colleagues um, educate our patients uh, up front um, before the point of diagnosis. But uh, we now in the survivorship um, sphere, and I hope um, that there'll be uh, plenty more uh, physicians that are um, you know employed in positions like I have in St. James's, uh, will push the boundaries here uh, and uh, ensure that all cancer patients, and, and for me, particularly you know pelvic oncology patients, uh, have world class service for mm. survivorship because you have
4: you've long waiting lists don't you there aren't enough of you in that there's only one
2: well I mean I, I'd be the first to point out that um, I have colleagues across the country that perform surgeries that are, are similar to what I do whether that's a penile prosthesis or a, a sphincter for incontinence uh, and fertility surgeries however um, the remit that I've been given by St James's and the Cancer Institute is to focus purely upon survivorship so I can spend my whole week um, looking after these patients and Mm -hmm. undoubtedly uh, over the coming years there needs to be more people like me uh, across the country.
4: There's a lot you can do though before you need to take the surgery option for for your patients.
2: Yes. Um, so, as I said, uh, you know, focusing in on what I particularly do with erectile dysfunction more commonly than than, uh, than uh, other issues, we can take a patient through what we describe as our penile rehabilitation uh, program uh, straight really from uh, diagnosis, um, whether it's oral therapies, injection treatments, um, creams, um And then moving on towards uh, the very important, you know, psychogenic and psychological aspects of this. And with the multidisciplinary approach that we have um, with nurse practitioners, um, you know, cancer nurse specialist survivorships, physiotherapy, physiotherapy, um, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the department in the hospital uh, are really trying to get a holistic holistic grasp.
4: Yeah, Are your patients ready though to deal with this straight after they've had cancer surgery in some cases or radiation treatment?
2: Not all. And so... But you, know, you
4: want them to be because you want them to start straight away, don't you?
2: Indeed. Uh, and it will be the case that not every patient is ready to start whether that's... Um, you know, the, uh, the recovery that they've been experiencing from their, their cancer treatment, their surgery, their radiation, whether they're having some more treatment, uh, chemotherapy, androgen deprivation treatment or or hormone treatment for, for cancer. So uh, it, it's not that everyone is ready at the same time point, but it is up to us as, as the specialists and the rehabilitation doctors to, to hone in on the ones that are ready and be aggressive with them and rehabilitate them and then be ready to to, to uh, get involved in mm-hmm. uh, in the care of others that might take a little bit longer to get through there i'm
4: sure it's very psychologically di- difficult for people going through this is it is that is that the main thing that you encounter
2: yeah um, undoubtedly um, you can be uh, quite isolated and and, and lonely uh, in 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 this you know, situation because you feel, well, I, I have the burden of the disease. You might not have a partner. You might have a partner. You um, might not have as, as, as solid family supports, uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that is why survivorship and, you know, a, a, um, a successful survivorship service mm-hmm. can support uh, these people through the through process.
4: It. How soon then after treatment will your patients know that they have an issue?
2: depending on what type of uh, treatment that they've received. So um, for pelvic cancers and, and predominantly, most commonly, uh, prostate cancer that, that uh, as a urologist, I, I, I treat, um, the uh, modality of the treatment or the type of treatment um, can uh, impacts when um, the side effects um, Mm-hmm. Uh, so
4: you can predict almost given what treatment they are they are given if what's someone going to has happen.
2: a an operation a, a prostatectomy where their prostate is removed for for cancer surgery, the vast majority of men over ninety percent will have an erectile function issue uh, right off the bat and there's no
4: way around that 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 is going to happen
2: well, there's variables and it depends on how fit and healthy they were before and what their preoperative erectile function was uh, and indeed some surgical um uh, variables as well. But no matter how good the surgeon is or how good the radiation therapist is, everyone will take a hit. Um, so the majority will will almost straight away have an issue. And the quicker that we can get in um, to help them, uh, the better and the faster they will get back to, to their recovery.
4: Incontinence then?
2: Common, not as common as erectile dysfunction. Approximately about one in five men will, will um, experience uh, urinary leakage after you know, prostate cancer surgery um, and we uh, with our uh, nurse specialists and with our physiotherapists in St James's, uh, commenced these uh, patients almost immediately on pelvic floor rehabilitation strategies mm-hmm. uh, so uh, not as common as erectile dysfunction but extremely um, frustrating uh, morbid difficult. And, and, and difficult Yes.
4: and how willing are your Irish patients to buy into rehabilitation
2: I think they all are. Um, uh, the,
4: you don't notice the same mindset issue. You've talked about your American patients and the difference. Are, are we willing to put the work in? I suppose is what I'm saying to you.
2: I, I think we are. I think again, there's a generational thing. I think again that we we, we need to break down some barriers about um, what traditionally would have been um, the you know the care protocols. But when I engage with my survivorship patients, when my oncology colleagues. Um, see them preoperatively and they're seen by our, our nurse specialists um, they will open up um, mm-hmm. if, they're, if they're given the um,
4: So it's know, all the, about giving them the opportunity the and, and, the pathway, and, yeah. and giving them the support. Um, I suppose it's important as well to say that not all prostate cancer patients will have access to, to you or to someone like you and I'm sure that's an ambition for the service to, to expand so that everybody has this chance.
2: Yes. I mean, we, we in the Cancer Institute in St. James's have, uh, have plans to continue to grow this service um, for all cancer patients and not just urological cancer patients and pelvic gong patients. And I foresee with the, the support um, that we get from the National Cancer Control Programme and from the Cancer Society and from what we are receiving from the HSE that there's, there's a, a, an awareness um, that this is a critical component of cancer care mm-hmm. and that uh, in time and in short order I believe that there will be uh, a lot more of um, this you know, care uh, nationally.
0: Dr John Sullivan on Today with Claire Byrne. A museum dedicated to the Book of Kells has opened at Trinity College. The digital exhibition uses light and sound to create an immersive experience which the university says will help transport visitors back to the 9th century when the manuscript is believed to have been
9: written. Reporter Kate Varley was there for Morning Ireland. Good morning from Trinity College Dublin, home of course to the Book of Kells since around 1661, there or thereabouts. Now, this manuscript has drawn visitors from around the world over the past number of decades. Many of you will remember it is a 9th century handwritten copy of the four Gospels of the New Testaments, once described as the chief treasure of the Western world, no less. And I have to say, Rachel, this exhibition looks at it in a whole new light. I'm standing in a room where pages come to life beneath my fingers, sculptures are Spilling their secrets, and the journey of the book from Scotland across the Irish Sea is recreated. Well, I can speak now to the head of marketing here at Trinity College, Dervla MacFadden. Dervla, looking around here, the contents of the Book of Kells have spilled out from the pages and into our surroundings. How and why did you come up with this concept?
1: Okay, we're delighted to have you here today, and we're so excited to open the doors to our new Book of Kells experience. And so we have the old library. So our visitors come to the old library, as they as they currently have done previously. They'll see the Book of Kells itself, so the physical Book of Kells, often cited as Ireland's greatest treasure. And, and then they'll go upstairs to the long room and see the long room and then Gaia. But now they'll come here to this pavilion, this digital experience, very, very interactive and immersive, as you'll have seen. And we get to showcase and highlight some of those other amazing collections. And then digitally show the journey of the Book of Kells, that really dramatic, exciting journey from Iona in Scotland through to present times in Trinity.
9: And visitors here, they have the opportunity to flick through the book in digital form, and obviously that can't be done with the original.
1: Yes, that's it, exactly. So over in the old library, they'll see the physical book itself. We have two pages on display um, at any one time. And actually, the two pages on display at the moment are absolutely amazing. We have St. John. So here in the digital book, we actually have the opportunity to show a lot more of the pages. Um, So the text pages, and then we have a lot of pages with artwork, which our visitors absolutely love. You'll see kind of the intricate artwork, the knotwork, spirals, animal motifs. And then they kind of bounce off down the corridor before you go into the journey so you can get really up close with those.
9: And it's not just the Book of Kells being brought to life here in the pavilion, is it? Can you tell me what else visitors can see when they come down here?
1: That's it. So we have the opportunity here to show off some of our other incredible collections. So in the old library we house 700,000 books um, from some of our early collections and precious collections all the way up to kind of objects and manuscripts. So what we're showing here are some of our sculptures. So in the long room itself we have sculptures, um, we have our our four new female sculptures and then um, our male sculptures and we've brought eight of them over here and they're all chatting to each other. So we've got Shakespeare and Socrates chatting to Rosalind franklin and lady augusta gregory we've got our brian brew harp recreated which you know kids absolutely adore and then we also have here our long room our long room reimagined where again people can get up close into those pages
9: and the hope here is that you're bringing a very old book to new audiences
1: That's it, exactly. And what we really hope is that this will also kind of open up a reconsideration um, for some of our domestic market. You know, people who've been here maybe as children or on school trips um, might now think, wow, this is something I might now think to come to again. So we're really excited um, to welcome new audiences, both domestically and locally.
9: And of course, as you say, this is an exhibition to honour and expand the reach of the Book of Kells itself, um, which is, of course, part of the exhibition. It's the first item that you see when you come in here. Now, I'm also joined by Anne-Marie Diffley. She is the Visitor Services Manager here at Trinity College, and I'm told few people can match her knowledge of that famous book and its surroundings. Anne-Marie, how difficult is it to maintain and preserve a manuscript
10: like this when it is clearly such a draw for people who come to view it from all around the world? The Book of Kells is currently displayed in a purpose-built safe uh, by an Italian firm, Guppian. So the... um, uh, the preservation and the conservation of the book and indeed the other treasures in the library are uppermost in our minds and of course this is the whole reason why we are doing the uh, old library redevelopment program uh, this is both to conserve and preserve not only the building but also the collections uh, in the library and there will be changes coming next year am I right in saying so We're open for at least another two years, um, and I think uh, it's it's a fine balance between uh, visitors coming to see the Book of Kells and the other treasures. uh, And then, of course, you have now uh, the Book of Kells experience. So you have the modern and the ancient uh, together. Of course, and the room that the Book of Kells is housed in,
9: it's famous, it's a huge draw again for visitors when they come to Ireland, when they come to Dublin.
10: Um, That is also seeing changes. Uh, Well, the long room, uh, the book is in the treasury, and the long room, which uh, is uh, central to our uh, preservation, conservation project, um, is, I suppose, it's often referred to as uh, Ireland's greatest interior, uh, the most beautiful room in in Ireland. uh, And our librarian often refers to it as Ireland's front room. Well, thank you very much. That was Anne-Marie Diffler. She
9: is the uh, Visitor Service Manager and uh, we were also speaking to Uh, Dervla McFadden who's Head of Marketing thank you very much both of you for joining me this morning now there's no end date at the moment for this exhibition it'll run while the redevelopment project of the old library is ongoing and early bird tickets are now on sale they're from 21.50 and that's until March and you can go and visit Visit visittrinity.ie for more information That was
0: Kate Varley's report for Morning Ireland Well, a story that featured across a few of today's radio shows was the proposal to rename Porky Quive Super Value Park the stadium is named after Podrigo Quive who served as Director General of the GAA from the early 1930s to the mid 1960s on the news at one reporter Jenny O'Sullivan spoke to people around Cork City to get their reaction today if a field is called Porky Quive, it means that it's after a man O'Keefe in English but O'Keefe. And by all accounts, this is a man who did an awful lot for the GAA and for Ireland. So I would think it would be a shame to lose that honouring of that man.
7: Personally, I like the name Park Keefe, you know. It's traditional, you know. If you want to call it So value park, let them build their own like that. But if they need the money, they need the money, simple as that. So they're being bailed out. Best to look to them anyway, that's all I can say, you know.
10: Like, people thought Lansdowne Road would never be forgotten, and yet mm. people now just think of the Aviva.
6: Yeah,
7: well, I suppose at this stage now, everything has changed, you know, like that, you know, you go to the, the stadiums now, as we say in Milan, the Sensera Stadium, for example, like,
2: they had a different name before, you know. We just have to adjust with the time, simple as that. Supervalue, what's wrong with Supervalue? Big employer, big employer in this town. They're trying to contribute a few bob. The economy, and why not? I, I think that maybe they should get permission of the the Queen family, maybe. And if that was done, and all is good, then all is good.
8: Well, I wouldn't be in favour of it. I suppose money talks. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> the clubs will have their say tonight, will they? Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see what their opinion is. Do you know anything
10: about the the man himself that it's named after? Um, no, I don't, to be honest, no. yeah. So you're looking forward to going to a Munster final, so in Super Value Park? Uh,
6: that wouldn't bother me, really. That wouldn't bother me one way or the other. It's, the, it's the teams that matter, really, the, the young lads that are out there on the field now, I think. I think we're looking we look an awful lot back into history and maybe we shouldn't be looking back so much as far we should be looking.
8: I, I was listening
10: on the radio all morning. It's quite interesting. Like, uh, I do hope they keep the, the quive, but we'll see. So what would it be called? Super Value Party (laughs) Creeve A compromise, exactly It doesn't roll off the tongue But look, there has to be compromise, doesn't there?
0: Jenny O'Sullivan speaking to people in Cork this morning does it take to be a tour guide in ireland what skills do you need to keep an audience hooked and hanging on your every word will claire Byrne heard from two very experienced tour guides to find
4: out well, I'm joined in the studio now by Jennifer Carberry who's a tour and experience coordinator at the Abbey Theatre who gave walking tours of Dublin for 10 years Jennifer you're very welcome lovely to have you here Thank you very much And I have Jim Ward on the phone who's owner of Galway Trails and chairperson of the Galway Tour Guides Association Hello Jim
11: how are you doing
2: Claire? Very good well, to see you. lovely Claire. to have
4: you uh, with us. Now, Jennifer, you, uh, as I said, gave walking tours of the capital for 10 years. Now you're doing the tours of, of the Abbey Theatre.
12: Who takes that tours? What types of people? What nationalities? Well, particularly like saying the Abbey, we get a lot of domestic local people, Irish people who love to come and get a window into how we make a show get behind the scenes, look at the intricate details of how people make things, the lights, the costumes and how all that work brings that show to life. For the street, I suppose a lot of people and um, we would have a blend of international tourists as well as a lot of domestic. Formerly, You would have had a lot more tourists come. But since about 2015, I think, with the decade of centenaries, we have a lot more Irish people engaging with walking Mm. around the city. Which is
4: great to see, I'm, I'm sure. So what is the secret sauce then that makes that tour of the capital, the walking tour, come alive, do you think, Jennifer?
12: Well, I think it's the devil is in the detail. You have to kind of build the context. You have to give people a sense of, the overall sense of Dublin, the history of Dublin, but then bring in those gorgeous details. So let's say the 1916 commemorations. Um, some things like the Gate Lodge, when people entered the castle, when uh, the rebels attacked it, the guards were making stew. It was 12.30 and everybody was making stew. The, DM, the Dublin Metropolitan Policemen were making stew. So when the rebels attacked, there was a Bureau of Military... Uh, history's statement that said that after the rebels tied up the guards they ate the stew. So sometimes it's those moments <laughs> it's a little detail. Or yeah. else like with Dr Kathleen Lynn when she got arrested and they brought her into a room at the back of the castle she actually complained that the room was very dirty and somebody came and tidied the room first. So I suppose it's that moment it's given the big picture the overall say how the river has influenced the growth of the city but then making experiences and stories that relate either to people's emotional connection or something they can relate to, like it was a glorious sunny day on mm-hmm. Easter Monday.
4: Just making it relevant and bringing it alive. Yeah, and those small details. And Jim, for you, how did you, because I often see tour guides, I think, how did you end up doing this? For, for you, how did it happen?
11: Well, basically because I, I, I'm able to talk and spin the, 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 the tale, I, I'm a playwright and a writer as well. I've got some plays, uh, one's on the YouTube of the James Joyce Centre. No, basically I, I, I was an engineer, I qualified with an MBA, but then I became a carer for a relative and I had to reinvent myself a couple of years ago, so I did two courses, one in digital marketing, one in tour guiding. It was suggested I'd be a tour guide by a former girlfriend of mine who said, because I, I would introduce girls around town, to showed them the town of Galway and all that, and uh, I just got into it that way. <laughs>
4: Um, and then when you're bringing the different nationalities around, I mean, what sort of cultural differences do you see with people when you're you're showing them around? I'm sure you get loads of Americans in Galway, do you?
11: The, Amer- the Americans are not only in Galway, but on the, 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 the nationwide trips of Rhodes Scholar as well. I bring, that's Oral ROAD. There are 55 years plus they in Ireland for their... their, their discover, uh different cultures, cultures of other lands and basically there's an Irish link as well They want to discover their Irish heritage. If we are careful with some of the, the tours in Galway because uh, you cannot do a tour in Ireland without mentioning the famine or the past or the colonialist experience as well and the British tourists tend to, to yawn or look the other way and say look at, them, look at that tree over there and all, uh, when you're talking about that. The Americans love that because it's connecting with their heritage, the immigration and all that and the Germans really absorb it because it's getting back at the Brits in some way.
4: Mm-hmm. Your own motto then, Jen, um, Jennifer, when it comes to holding the attention of people, I know you've taken inspiration from Shane McCamosh, who sadly is is no longer with us. Tell us about that.
12: Well, I suppose a good few tour guides of my age around Dublin, we w- we were before the decade of centenaries. We were interested in stories and going to Glasnevin and meeting Shane Macamosh and how he wove those stories and um, how he he created the details. Sometimes he brought in mythology. Sometimes he brought in remembrance. I suppose I teach in Dublinia yeah, and to tour guides there. And his motto was beautiful. It was, you know, tell them something they know, like the obvious things of what they see. Embellish that with something they don't know so that they can learn and never be afraid to either make them laugh or cry. You know, it's OK to be uncomfortable mm-hmm. if you're comfortable in what you know and the stories that you're telling. It's OK if it's a bit sad. Mm-hmm. It's sometimes better if it's a bit funny for the group. But I think some stories are important to tell. And I think Shay MacThomas was an inspiration for people like um, the Come Here to Me Lads, like Donna Fallon or particularly myself. Just he had a way with words and captivating people. And I think he set a standard that many of us
4: try to bring with us. Yeah, Just that notion of telling people, Jim, something that they don't know. We'd be surprised what people don't know or what people are surprised by. Will you tell us the story about the group from Las Vegas and their reaction when you showed them the snog in the pub?
11: Yeah, it's just because sort of simple things really matter. Uh, there was one there was an evening tour with a group of 30 people from Las Vegas here for a wedding. and I was walking around the main pedestrianised street in Galway and we passed a certain pub. And there was a snug in that pub, an old Victorian snug in the pub, where the ladies used to drink when they weren't out in the main bar. So I pointed this out to them and I said, that, but the door was open at the time. I said, by the way, there's a snug in there. I explained what a snug was. And man for man, woman for woman, they each went in, peered in the snug and took a photograph, snapshot of it they were amazed by it they never saw it. coming from Vegas certainly they would never have seen such a thing but there is a story around every bend and twist and turn in Galway City not just a historical story but an anecdote or a funny story indeed I you know there's James Joyce connection with Galway there's the 1916 connection uh, there's uh, I, I mean the whiskey trails and all that indeed one friend of mine was in a pub in Galway last year and an American walked in and stood him and his friend two whiskeys each and the, he had, had two whiskies, and the bill came to over five grand a certain blend I won't, can't mention the name send me a of whiskey that was sold in the pub. Now the American guy could absorb it because I found out later on he was actually a team writer from Hollywood who was visiting Galway at the time. <laughs> Luckily. He all, yeah, 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 he could, yeah well, I'm sure he would have been forewarned about the price before he, or he ordered But that's just one story. Another story connected with James Joyce is that um, there was, yeah, the Bowling Green in Galway where Nora Barnacle Joyce came from. She was a Galway woman, Nora Barnacle. And uh, original Ulysses ended up in a house of one of the neighbours. Original signed Ulysses which would be priceless on today's market. But I think this guy, this is actually recorded in RTE archives, that the neighbor who got the book, he, he, a visiting professor came to the house, a US professor visiting the house from the university. He was an American in the, in the university. He probably saw cash registers in his eyes, but he came and he said, Do you have a Ulysses in the house? Can I have a look at it? And the man said, The answer was, and this is on RTE recordings. Well, he says, There was a, a priest visited the house and he said that, that it was a dirty book to my wife. So my wife said, Either The book goes or I go. So I looked at the wife and she was a good cook. So the book ended up in the attic. That was the story, you The, the <laughs> Ulysses. So, somewhere in Bowling Green, there's an original Price's Ulysses.
4: Yes, yeah, hidden away in the attic. And, Jennifer, what yeah. always gets, gets a laugh from, from your people who you're walking around or who you used to travel with around the city centre?
12: Well, I think um, the nicknames of Dublin, I mean, the Floozy and the Jacuzzi, um, the erection at the intersection.
0: That was Jennifer Carberry, Tour and Experience Coordinator at the Abbey Theatre in Dublin. And we heard Jim Ward, owner of Galway Trails, on today with Claire Byrne. Well, that's all we have time for on this edition of Playback Daily. So from me, Louise Herity, thanks for listening and take care.